fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Welcome to another episode of Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. This is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology and makes it a reality. We have been entrusted with that responsibility. We are the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn. With me, physics phenom, Dr. Michael Denon. Hey, Dan. Great to be here as we continue our Star Trek journey. Um, this is great for me because I'm journeying into an episode, a series that I didn't actually watch the first time through, and it's thanks to our podcast that I now got to watch it. That's wonderful. I mean, you are really boldly going where you have never gone before, really, which is, I mean, how much more thematic is that, right? I mean, uh, I couldn't agree with you more, and I'm brand new to this whole thing, and thanks to our enigmatic engineer, Ben Siebser, I am now an aficionado. Uh, ben, are you with us, and are you still broadcasting from an undisclosed location? Yes, the uh, Federation has sent me out to the Badlands. I'm patrolling here to check, look for both Maquis and any Cardassian incursions. You know, you gotta, gotta keep things safe. I, I, I appreciate all your hard work out there. I don't think you get enough credit, but I want to make sure that you have it from me. So thank you very much for your service. So as I mentioned, I'm brand new to this. We're talking about a DS9. That stands for Deep Space Nine. And this show really talks about genetic engineering in a way that a lot of the other series, the Star Trek series, do not. So we're going to kind of cover that today. But before we do, you know, I mentioned this is Ben. Ben introduced me to this. From what I understand, Ben, this is your favorite Star Trek series. And as a matter of fact, when we had a conversation about it, you got a little misty. So this holds a special place in your heart. Am I right? That's very true, Dan. I feel like DS9 just is such a it does such a good job covering all sorts of different topics that are so relevant even today there's issues with civil rights and uh, religious rights uh, post-traumatic stress just it, it covers all sorts of very very powerful topics you know and that's one of the reasons why i love the original star uh, um, the original twilight zone because they did a lot of that they used science fiction to really talk about socio political events going on and issues uh, I, I think it's a great way to tell it is through sci-fi so this is going to be we're talking about this in voyager these are the next two episodes we're doing to kind of uh, get the middle the meat of our star trek summer and these episodes, we're going to be able to do something a little bit different. We're going to talk about the technology. That's what we do. Of course, this is a technology show. But, you know, I want to get a little philosophical. We're talking about some things that are very close to reality. Some of them are an actual reality. And, and for me, it's a combination of a few things. A lot of this tech is possible. Uh, there's lots of debates on whether some of these things are legal or not. And I'm the analytical mastermind. So I think talking about it from an analytical standpoint is key for all of us to do. We're talking about Deep Space Nine. Now, again, every single series has its own focus, and this particular series focus is going to be genetic engineering. So let's talk about some of the exciting genetically engineered advancements in the world of Deep Space Nine. So, Ben, I'm going to need your help a little bit here in case I kind of flounder. But from what I understand, I can't flounder when I'm talking about the founders, <laughs> which are basically a group of people who have genetically engineered, I think, at least two races that we're going to talk about, the Jem'Hadar and the Vorta. And they are a group of changelings, which, if I understand this correctly, are essentially a race of beings that can kind of alter their physical appearance in a way. Is that, is that right, Ben? 
Yes, they, the, the founders are, are changelings. We know that they look very down upon the solids, as they call them. <laughs> Is that, uh, did they say that? Did they say the yeah. solids? <laughs> That's great. And we know that they experience uh, consciousness in kind of interesting ways. They, they live together in kind of a colony where they all kind of pool together and form what's called the Great Link. And they create this kind of single consciousness where they all trade their thoughts and experiences. And it's a very interesting way of living for an alien. Uh, we've see, we see similar things with the Borg, but in this case, it's rather than a technical version of that, it's a biological version. Now, when you say pool the resources, you mean like turn into a pool of gelatin or whatever they are and kind of like all mixed together? So Odo is our first experience with these uh, shapeshifters or changelings, and we see that he can change into lots of different shapes. However, what we also learn is that Odo's actually not very good <laughs> at being a, a shapeshifter because he didn't grow up with the shapeshifters. He was part of uh, like kind of a panspermia program they have where they would send out baby changelings all over the galaxy to kind of eventually find their way back to the Great Link and report on what they found. What we find is that they are actually incredible at looking like other people. And they're, uh, during the height of the Dominion War, they've impersonated generals and admirals, and they're very scary when you think about that kind of stuff. Well, when I look at Odo, so from the show, uh, Odo kind of looks like, you know, we just did an episode on Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which I highly recommend you watch if you haven't already, people listening at home. But he looks like a pod person. He looks like an unformed pod person. I, I never really understood why he couldn't fix his eyes and his ears. It's because he's he did. It's because he wasn't he didn't grow up with the founders to learn how to shapeshift properly. <laughs> well, well, all right. So that, so that, so we got three things here. Let's not. I, 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 let's keep it pretty simple if we can for people who are listening. I guess most people listening probably know this stuff. Because keep it simple for me. Let's keep it. You know, I, I got to muddle my way through this. So the Gem Hadar. These are the first race we're going to talk about. Now these are the guys who kind of look like Doomsday from the Superman comics. And the first one of the first episodes that you sent is very interesting because essentially the crew of Deep Space Nine stumble across this ship that has essentially you know we did the whole thing on the mandalorian right so think of how the child is in that that hovering it's like this hovering you know bassinet what is it like a stroller yeah yeah, yeah hovering bassinet yeah. yeah exactly and they find basically this jemhadar child in a in a metabolic you know like in a hibernative a hibernative and a hibernation state this is kind of interesting because they grow at such a fast rate we learned that you know in the course of you know, nine, was it two weeks? They grow like nine years or something. They've got an incredibly fast metabolic rate. Uh, they, they come in a stasis changer. They don't age, but they grow really quickly and they gain their abilities. They have artificial, they have intelligence that's kind of artificially administered, I believe. So let's talk about that incredible growth rate. What is the level? I know, Ben, this is kind of your expertise as well, but um, I'm going to end with you. Let's go to Denon. What type of energy would be required to basically sustain that level of growth? Well, that's an interesting question, Dan, because when you, when you think about the energy required to sustain it, um, you know, it's all of this is, is about power, actually. We use the word energy, but we really mean power because it's how fast you're spending the energy, right? Um, because you, the energy to grow from one state to another is kind of fixed. It doesn't matter how fast you do it. 
But in this case, you do want to get it quickly. And so that's power. Um, and this is a, you know, a surprising metabolic rate. I think they refer to it in the show where the, they say, well, we've, we know some simple, very simple organisms that can do it this quickly, but never anything this complex. That's what they're shocked about. Um, but, and for me, it's like there's no sign what, where all of that energy is coming from. So again, it's less the amount, but where they're getting it. Uh, I do think the other thing is you mentioned the learning. I find that very fascinating, and we can come back to that um, after we let Ben comment on the, 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 just the growth rate process and where they might, from an engineering perspective, get that energy from. I think the energy part isn't actually as crazy as we're talking about. Like so much of our energy, so much of the food we consume goes into, you know, maintaining our brain and our, and our thoughts. But I don't think it would be a huge stretch to like say eat two or three times as much as we do and grow really fast. I, I, that doesn't seem totally crazy to me. I mean, maybe it, I, I've obviously I'm not a biologist and I haven't done the calculations, the, the volume growth isn't that huge. I think, the, I think the bigger question is, like, what have they done, done to their metabolism to enable that kind of growth? Like, how do you, how do you, have, uh, how do you have growth plates on your bones that can, that can induce bone growth that quickly? Not where does the calcium come from and where does the energy come from? Because I think we spend a lot of energy that you don't really need to that you could get the efficiency up and make it that part of it work. Okay, I, for me, I, I thought like just the, ba- the just the building blocks of human, you know, like just the proteins and the yeah. lipids and the cardio, like that that would seem like an issue only because it grows so quickly. Uh, but we can come back to that. Well, actually, Dan, I, I like what you just said. I mean, and, and you could put it with Ben. As Ben said, it's not getting the stuff. I, my comment more was along the lines of you don't really see um, him eating a whole ton of stuff. Yeah. So... I agree with you. Like right. it, in the context, it's hard to understand. I think Ben's point, which I'm agreeing with here, is if you were given enough food, you can get enough mm. stuff in you. Yeah. Um, but then there's the mechanical problem of actually how do you translate that into the new pieces? How do you make the mechanisms work? And it's, I think, also tied with the whole learning thing, right? We actually know uh, most of like our language capability and all of that is a learning process, not a genetic like built-in process. And you alluded to this in your opening description. I think the learning and how they figure out how to talk without actually going through the learning stage is, is a little more challenging in some ways, given what we know about biology, but intriguing because that's what computers basically do. We give them their knowledge. So maybe there's a, a better analogy here with computers. Yeah, well, there's two possibilities. One is that when they're a baby, they're the, that knowledge is kind of injected into their brain. So he already had it by the time he was in stasis. But it's also certainly possible that, you know, there, if you look at a lot of animals, they're able to do very advanced behaviors without really being taught to do it. It's just part of their instinct. And I could imagine the, the founders have, you know, they're, they're clearly very capable genetic engineers. And it, to me, it seems quite possible that they have just engineered a way for the brain to grow the intelligence by default. And and we see that the Jem'Hadar are very much of a single singular mind or a singular thought process. There's not a lot of variety, if any, really, in how they work or think. 
Yeah, I think that that's really true because it, it seems to me from watching this, they essentially every Gem Hadar that is engineered has almost like a, a basic template of knowledge that's kind of in their head. It's like instinctual instead of like the instinct to, you know, the like the fight or flight that that most animals that we know have. This is more an instinct that goes even further than that, and it's even like got speech and yeah. and movement. It's it's basically the first nine ten years of life is already kind yeah. of you know generically templated into the brain. And most critically, always obey the founders. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and what, what's so there's a couple interesting things on that because you know we're gonna get to the Vorda, which are the second thing, and they have uh, you know they've got that exact same kind of thing too. But one of the interesting things about the Gem Hadar that, from a genetic engineering standpoint, I think is both brilliant and insidious at the same time. And, you know, as we find throughout history, a lot of those those two things are often go together, as we'll talk about later on. But just this this idea that they're addicted, they require this substance called Ketracel White, which essentially creates a level of subservience. Even if it's not genetically into their brain, they they need this or they'll die or they'll go crazy. Uh, th this it's is both. kind of interesting. It is. You're right. Okay. Yeah, it is. Okay. It's the only thing they eat. So eventually, if, they, if they're not getting it, they starve to death and go crazy in the process. I mean, that's pretty insidious, but it also, you know, they do what you want, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, so and what else is kind of interesting about the Gem Hadar is not only that, but we also learn later on that there are different genetic versions for different parts of the galaxy. I believe uh, the you know there's like a gamma quadrant versus alpha quadrant Gem Hadar, and that they're kind of more suited to the environment. So there's even subspecies within the total you know, engineered species of the Gem Hadar, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah. So let's get to some real in-life stuff, in real life stuff, because... What I like about that particular point that they have very different, you know, Jem'Hadar versions for different environments. There's this company called uh, Vantian Bio. I'm going to put a link, you know, link on the page as I always do. So what they're looking for are genetic outliers. People who have developed uh, different types of extreme microevolutions, we can call them, the, the ability to exist in harsh environments. For example, the Sherpas of the Himalayas, they're able to live as a group in these hypoxic environments, these environments with very little oxygen, and they're able to function completely normally. Well, the secret to that is in their DNA. And so once we've collected a database, that's what this company's doing, the key to it are these computers and these software programs that they're doing. They're able to find these specific genetic traits, turn them on and off. Now, when you start, when you're able to find them, put them into a computer system that can basically run an algorithm or to start building genetic templates. Now, it's these, that is the specific advancement that allows you to start creating a genetically engineered race. Well, yeah, Dan, and I think that's both both the weirdly scary and kind of exciting piece of genetic engineering. You know, the one side I think many people agree on is, well, if we can eliminate diseases this way, right, we like, we like curing things in general, and people tend to agree. On the other hand, it, it, when you think about genetically engineering for particular traits— and adding, you know, you get a little Jem'Hadar-ish, whereas is the person going to sneak in the obey me only code? Um, you right, know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. It, 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 there's a lot here that makes you nervous. And I think what's interesting, too, is you, you see this a little bit, you hear it with the Vorta, but it, it seems like the, 
the founders didn't start from nothing. It sounds like they found races that were already existing in the Delta Quadrant and then manipulated them to suit their good, their own purposes. So it seems like part a good chunk of this is just finding the right base material to start your project on as well. You know, I think that that's very true. So this is a, kind of an interesting thing I wanted to touch on because the Vortas, if their story is true, the founders come down to a planet and they find these ape-like creatures there and they basically genetically engineer them to have a higher level of intelligence. But also the key component here is to be subservient to them. They're really like the administrators, I think, of their group. Like they kind of keep an eye on the Jem Hadar and they, they you know, dole out the Ketracel White, if I'm understanding it correctly. They have a genetic code to worship the founders. What's interesting about this is in some ways they're very much like canines, like the the, the common you know the, like a household dog, right? Like we essentially took wild wolves and we domesticated them into a subspecies where we basically bred them for desired traits. We did this over thousands of years. We didn't do it in a lab, you know, but we did it naturally through the breeding process, I guess you could say. I'm, I'm using naturally in your definition, Denon. I wouldn't exactly call it a natural <laughs> process. But, but we kind of did that, and, and in some ways, we kind of believe that that's more acceptable, although with the same outcome, as actually going in with chemical tweezers and pliers and making our own genetically right. engineered you know, yeah. race of people. What do, how do you guys think, what do you guys think about that? Well, I, I think, Dan, for me, that's always been this challenge that we, we kind of ignore or I don't see discussed much in the con context of genetic engineering. And it goes back to my minor pet peeve, which you alluded to, that we call things artificial versus natural when there's this is an artificial distinction because everything is natural. It's all part of the physical world. And we as humans have been genetic engineering since we first started domesticating things now. Doing it through breeding takes longer and perhaps has some safety features in the sense that you can't get too wild and crazy. But it has meant we've made, you know, some very invasive crops that take over other things. You know, you can argue some of our breeding has not been in the best historically, which may be why we're nervous about speeding it up. For me, the fundamental difference between doing it in the lab versus the way we've done it historically is kind of twofold. It goes much faster, so if you make a mistake, it, it might be um, more disastrous. And that second one, when you're messing directly, not just through breeding, you probably have more options to make mistakes. What's interesting, though, is is the, the natural way, right, with a selective breeding and things like that, it also often leads to problems because you're not controlling everything. Like, you see this now with a lot of the modern dog breeds where you end up with animals that have hip issues or breathing d difficulties because while you're you're breeding for the traits you want you're also not able to breed out the traits that you don't want it, with the same power that you have with uh, with genetic uh, engineering. Oh, I think that's true. I think, you know, just to quickly touch on this artificial versus natural thing, the way it appears to me, and maybe this is how it's defined, and I think this is where you and I split, Denon, is when I think of artificial, I, it means manipulation by the hand of man. And when I think of natural, it's manipulation by the hand of nature through the natural processes that don't include man. So that that's, when I think of it, that's really kind of how I break it down because those have two very different outcomes when you really think about it. Well, well, I would actually argue, so I would agree with you, Dan, that's a good definition of the two, but they're not necessarily 
um, intrinsically different in terms of being good or bad. Um, so, you know, when, when humans interfere, we are still part of nature. That's still nature doing something. So nature can do bad things. We can do bad things. Nature can do good things. We can do good things. That's my only point. Says the only the only religious person on the panel. I mean, you you the, the nature part is this is the unseen force that guides living the, the essence of life. Humans are a product of that, and therefore do not have the macroscopic scope to understand all the ins and outs. It's like it would be like a plant breeding other plants. Well, that's not natural. If you if you believe in a higher source, that would have a little better sense of it. Well, why am I defending? Uh, why am? How are we at two opposite sides here, Denon? What's happening? Is the is twenty twenty that crazy that you and I have absolutely flipped? Are dogs and cats living together? This is mass hysteria, Denon. It, it is. It is. Well, I, I think this is where the physicist in me comes out and and really worries. You know, the, the whole natural and artificial thing is much more a reaction to the people who keep trying to insist that the natural food they sell me will be healthier than the artificial food until I offer them arsenic, which is completely natural. <laughs> no, that's true. Um, well, so here are a couple of interesting things. So let's talk about, you know, we at the end of our show, we got to tell you how to genetically engineer a race. We, we're going to tell you the, the ethics behind it, but, you know, that's part of what the show is. Got a couple of really interesting articles that have come out very recently. So I'm going to put these on the website as I always do. There is this, uh, we actually have a blueprint for early human development. We have now, through a couple of uh, different studies, we have learned about a process called uh, gastrulation, which is early on in the first 21 days of an embryo's life, there are three distinct layers that are formed. They're the three main systems of your body, which are the nervous system, the musculoskeletal system, and the digestive system. We now have pretty good um, data on how these blueprints form from an embryonic standpoint. So that's really kind of key if you're gonna if you're gonna design something, right? You want to know how they're formed. I think this is really important because when we start looking at, in the show, you've got Dr. Bashir, who is, a, he's genetically engineered. So on Deep Space Nine, he's, we learned that he's genetically engineered. And there's this whole argument on whether genetic engineering is okay because D DNA sequencing um, has a lot of unintended consequences. And I think this is a, a, a kind of a theme of sci-fi. Turns out there's a little bit of truth to that. There is in London, some scientists in London basically took embryos and used CRISPR to kind of edit out a gene, right? What they found is when those embryos started to form and they were replicating DNA, they made a lot of mistakes. They would take out parts of genes on uh, parts of the DNA on neighboring genes. The mistake rate was close to 50%. And I think it's these unintended consequences that make gene editing from a man-made standpoint very difficult to control the, the outcome on. Yeah, and, and Dan, well, Dan, I think there's two things in there. And as Ben said earlier, it... Right now, it's obviously very difficult to control, I would argue, because we're still new at it. Um, someday, we might be much better at really understanding all the implications of anything we do in the editing space. But that still leaves, as you've mentioned, the whole ethical question of the, the things you can do with genetic engineering. And I keep coming back to this sneaking in the you-must-obey command into the DNA. You know, that's one that... It was kind of nice when you see a new story. For me, um, that was a part of DS9 that was new from a science fiction and worry point of view. And I'm like, ooh, yeah, that does add another on that negative side of genetic engineering for me. 
um, that that control code and control switch because um, lots of really great science fiction stories have this genetic engineering as a basis, and many of them um, are some of my favorite, actually. But this was a new twist that I really found fascinating to think about in, in Deep Space Nine. No, I, I, com- I completely agree. I mean, look, we love docile dogs who are loyal and friendly, you know, and if, if that's something you can turn on <laughs> in a gene, why wouldn't overlords want to take that and control humans in the same way? You know, I mean, it's it's really the basis for a lot of conspiracy theories that, are, that run around in yes. the world, you know, that we're all familiar with. Uh, you know, one other thing that's kind of interesting, I'm going to just briefly mention a couple of other kind of interesting stories. There are a bunch of genetically modified mosquitoes that are being released in Florida and Texas. Basically, what they do is they create non-viable female offspring. When we're talking about the laws of unintended consequences, we're not just talking about how DNA itself resequences and how it can kind of screw up, like I mentioned in the other study, but also what does this have on the environment? Everyone talks about how much they hate mosquitoes, but mosquitoes are a food source for lots of different animals. So if you start collapsing those things, you know, we talked about the, the wood wide web in our Invasion of the Body Snatchers episode. If you start doing that and collapsing this artificially, these are the types of things that, that can happen. And what if you took, you know, along with this, what if you have a revamped species? Let's say we create the Gem Hadar. What, what is the impact of a completely revamped species, an invasive species, you know, so to speak, on its new environment? You know, we're talking about that on on a human level, not just on an insect level. I think that that's kind of weird. And just to close that up, one of the things that's really debated in these ethics questions is germline editing versus essentially epigenetics. This idea of changing what's expressed from a health standpoint, as you mentioned, Denon, and then changing genes that will then be passed on to offspring, which in, you know, in 2018, that Chinese scientist, Dr. He, he created two twins unethically that were resistant to HIV, which threw all of this into a tailspin just just recently. So I think these are really the centers of the debate on this when you're really, if you're at home trying to create your own species, this is what you're thinking about, you know? Well, and Dan, one of the things that fascinates me is a lot of these things are, are actually quite old, even before we thought of genetic engineering. You mentioned the mosquito and the challenge there and what happens when the environment goes away. I'll never forget going to Catalina Island um, and maybe I was just a gullible tourist, but you have the hysterical story of, uh, I forget the, the level of species, but, you know, the rodent that invades. So then they bring another species to kill that off, and then that one takes over. So you have to bring in another species and it just keeps going up and up the food chain. And suddenly you have this major problem. And so, yeah, the unintended consequences are, are very scary in this space in some ways. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. the, the song about the woman who swallows a fly and the nest right. swallows a spider, and it goes on and on, right? I mean, that's <laughs> it's a funny song, but that's kind of exactly what happens. You know, it's very strange. Uh, so, Ben, what do you think about this? You're quiet. Are you are you kind of putting together your database right now, or what, what are you working on? What do you? <laughs> I, I think it, it, it's it's a challenging subject because there's a lot of things that have really improved our lives in a lot of ways, like. Basically, feeding ourselves would not be possible without genetic engineering. And I'm not uh, not necessarily the the scary, you know, in a lab, uh, you know, genetic engineering that we that we're kind of talking about here. But like, there are basically no food crops that aren't highly, highly selectively bred from their wild counterparts. Like, corn is not the corn we eat is nothing like the corn that nature created. Apples. Natural apples are crab apples. 
Um, right, right. <laughs> oranges without seeds, you know, you can't grow without seeds. Clearly, we've done something there. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, there's all of this stuff that is critical to our survival as a species that required enormous amounts of selective breeding and, and engineering that is critical to our survival. And we have to appreciate that what we're doing now with the science of crop science and genetic science is is an extension of that. And in some ways, it's an improvement upon these slower selective breadways where you can potentially make something that's really dangerous. Like you could be making tomatoes, which tomatoes come from deadly nightshade, right? Like the, the precursors of tomatoes are highly toxic. Um, and if you messed up tomato crossbreed, you could end up with poisonous tomatoes. So that look and taste delicious, by the way. <laughs> that look and taste delicious. So right. you have to really think about what we can do in the lab to make these processes more stable and more controllable because that's, that's kind of the future and will get us where we need to be faster in some ways. I know. I, I totally agree. I mean, I got to tell you, after reading all this stuff and, and really kind of looking at the ethics, I, I don't even know if it's feasible to produce a, a genetically engineered race of people, right? Like a, a subservient race. And I think if the, if the human race was capable of successfully designing, building, and controlling some sort of group of people or species or whatever it was, I think they would be robots. I think that's really, I mean, that's, you know, I kind of saying that jokingly, but I think that that's really true. But let's talk really quickly before we go. Errors, additions, omissions, things that we want to talk about but are not going to. Ben, do you have any for Deep Space Nine? Yeah, I also think is really interesting about the founders, and especially the Vortas, their cloning tech. Like, we see Wei-Yoon, who is, like, the chief um, ambassador, I guess, to the Federation from the Dominion. He gets murdered like a couple times in the show, <laughs> and and they just refer keep referring to him as like Wayun Five, Wayun Six, <laughs> because they just there's always a backup of these uh, Vorta, <laughs> which I think is really funny. It's like Logan's Run, you know, not to yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, that's yep. kind of the same thing. Uh, Dennett, what about you? Okay, a couple quick things. One is I love the idea of liquid versus solid people. I mean, thinking about shape-shifting is always one of uh, my favorite things because it's the biggest challenge from physics. And Terminator, liquid metal, another good example. Always lots of fun stuff there. Um, the other one is I, I, I had not realized Deep Space Nine was at the same time um, as Next Generation Star Trek. And so, you know, watching this and seeing this, it made me really wonder where did all the comfy primary colors go? <laughs> <laughs> very true. I think those are very good points. Uh, I, I was going to mention Odo. We kind of talked about it earlier that he looks like a pod person. I didn't really understand that. Ben nailed that for me. Also, in this episode called The Abandoned, there's a kid playing on a video game, uh, like a, on a tablet. It looks just like an iPad. And this was filmed in the 90s. I mean, just another part of Star Trek predicting the future. Uh, so if we missed anything or you want to tell us, uh, you know, about the show, you want to talk to us, you can reach the show on social media, on Twitter, the show is at FGGGBTPod. On Facebook, it's at FGGGBT. But you can get in touch with us. Denon, how can people get in touch with you? So I'm at Denon Michael on Twitter and Instagram. And then on Facebook, you just make add a prof in there because I am a professor. So at prof Denon Michael. You are still a professor, you know, despite the fact that you've been on this show talking about all kinds of crazy stuff. Right. You have not, you've not been removed from your <laughs> the life of academia, thank God. Uh, ben, where can people find you? 
You can find me at, on all the major social media networks at bseepser. How do you spell that? B-S-I-E-P-S-E-R. Wonderful. You can get in touch with me on Twitter at Daniel J. Glenn, Instagram at the Daniel J. Glenn, on Facebook at Analytical Mastermind. So we've really hit a lot of ethical questions here. If you want to create your own race of beings so that to, to do all sorts of little tasks for you, uh, I'm not saying don't do it, but I kind of am saying don't do it. But should you decide to, uh, be responsible. You want to be a superhero, <laughs> not a supervillain, and lots of supervillains have these types of subservient races. Uh, or keep that in mind. Uh, but until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, if you like the show, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? The good news is we're on all the major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and now Spotify. If you're not already on those platforms, don't worry. We've made it very easy for you. Go to our website, fgbt.com. That's fgbt.com, where you will find links to everything you're looking for. All the subscribe buttons at the bottom of the page. Links to our social media are right there. And if you go to the top of the page, you'll see a little button that says episodes click on that and go to your favorite episode there you can find the show in its entirety you can find the links that we talked about the in real life examples that we brought to you including videos and of course we've got each episode has its own youtube video you can watch it there if you prefer and if you like this show you're gonna like everything that i do go to danieljglenn.com to find out more thank you for listening